It's October 31st, 2006, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. As everybody knows, the tuba is a big instrument, but the subject of the tuba is even bigger. I decided this week I'd do a little reading on both the history and the current state of this instrument. Well, I wasn't prepared for the avalanche of information, especially about how many different kinds of tubas there are. I imagine that shopping for a tuba must be a little like shopping for shoes. They seem to come in countless sizes and styles. In fact, there seems to be a tuba for every social occasion. There are little ones, usually called euphoniums. There are medium-sized ones, often used in the orchestra. Big ones. Bigger ones. Ones that are so big they wrap around the body and serve as wonderful rain catchers. And even one built in 1911 that was so big it required one person to operate the valves and another person to blow into the mouthpiece. The tube is an instrument for which there was a demand long before its creation. Composers and conductors were always looking for something to supply the bottom end of the orchestra. Way back in the 16th century, a very clever Frenchman invented something called a serpent. Well, if you can imagine holding a fat snake to your lips, you'll get the basic idea. Fashioned out of wood and covered in leather with six large finger holes, the serpent was essentially a woodwind instrument with a brass mouthpiece. It made an engaging, low rumble that seemed to appeal to composers, many of them right up to the end of the 19th century. Beethoven, Mendelssohn, even Wagner were familiar with the serpent. You'll be relieved to learn that an even larger serpent appeared around 1840, and it was called the anaconda. Use your imagination. Later ancestors of the tuba include the ophoclide, which looks much like the progeny of a baritone saxophone and a bugle on steroids. Oh, and don't let me forget to mention the Russian bassoon or the helicon, both of which would have been as effective in clearing the battlefields as any artillery pieces. To make sense of all this, and tell us a bit about the current state of the tuba, I've asked my good friend Nick Atkinson to come to our studio this week and shed some light into the dark and twisted corners of this big instrument. Nick Atkinson has been the tuba player for the National Arts Centre Orchestra since 1976, and he's played with just about every orchestra in Canada at one time or another. Nick, welcome to the NACOcast. So are there tubas in Oz? Yes. Have you been there? Not yet, but we'll be going there sometime this year, I think. <laughs> Over the rainbow with the tuba, that's beautiful. Nick, do you own, own any of these historical instruments that I talked about? No, but I've seen quite a few of them. So have you had a serpent in your hand? I mean, the musical kind? Um, yes, I have. And have you tried to produce a sound on one? Yes. And how did it sound? A bit like a serpent. A bit... <laughs> What about the ophoclide? That's a little bit more uh, typical. I have a friend in Toronto who, on, who owns an ophoclide, actually. And um, as you say, it's a bit like a baritone sax and a euphonium combined. Yeah. It has keys, which make no sense whatsoever to a brass player. 
and a brass mouthpiece. And my friend plays it very well, but uh, I had a tough time. But the sound is actually quite a nice sound. Now, how would you describe that sound? It's like a baritone. It's like a baritone or a euphonium sound. Uh-huh. It's a, quite brassy. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. a brass instrument. Yeah, even though it seems to have the configuration of a long conical bore woodwind. That's right. Yeah. Because there were no valves in those days. Right. They had to operate with keys. So, Nick, how many tubas do you own? I've got five plus uh, a chimbasso, which is a contrabass valve trombone. Uh, how big is that? Um, it's about four feet t- tall. Four feet tall. Okay. So, d- describe to me in your collection the various sizes and uses of these tubas. Well, uh, as you mentioned earlier, they come in different sizes. Uh, I have an F tuba, I have two E flat tubas, and I have two C tubas. Okay, so, so the, for the benefit of our NACOCAST listeners, when you say an F tuba, it doesn't mean that it just plays in the key of F, but it means it's a transposing instrument. It's built in the key of F. So what, how, how do you read the music in key of F? It, is a C on the part played as a C on the instrument? That's right. Uh, whatever you see, you play. The thing, the thing that's different is the fingerings. Okay. So a C on a C tuba is uh, you don't need valves. A B flat on a B flat tuba, you don't need valves. And I so see. Forth. F on an F tuba is open. So that's the, that's the harmonic series. So even built. though you're reading the music in C and you're thinking in C, your fingers are having to do different things according to the instrument that you're that, playing. That's right. Well, that gets a bit complicated. You have five sets of fingerings. Uh, yeah. So whenever you pick up a new tuba, does it mean you have to kind of reorient yourself or do you get quite, at, quite adapt at making quick, uh, quick change? Well, it's like the trumpet. Um, people don't expect it of the tuba, but the trumpet players and horn players do it all the time. They have to transpose all the time. Mm-hmm. So you have B flat and C and D and E flat and F and G trumpets, and they all have different fingerings, and they have to transpose sometimes on the same instrument for different parts, and we have to do the same thing. Now, you brought an instrument into our studio today, and can you describe this? It's, uh, I'll tell our listeners it's a very beautiful instrument, and it's silver-plated. That's right. This is my newest acquisition, actually. Actually, my second newest most often we see uh, tubas like other brass instruments made out of brass and appearing to be made out of brass with that golden color. But this is a silver instrument. What are the acoustical advantages of a silver-plated tuba? I think um, the plating question is a, bit, a lot of mumbo-jumbo. But some people think that silver sounds a bit clearer or a bit brighter than brass. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't think that's really the case. Is it purely aesthetic for you? I think so. Uh-huh. It just depends what sounds better. Okay. So let's have you pick up this tuba, and I'm going to ask you a few questions about it. First of all, it has four valves. So you need to explain to us, what exactly does a valve do on a tuba? Okay. Actually, it has five valves. Oh, it has five. Okay. This and is, is that typical for a, a, an orchestral tubist to have to operate five valves? Oh, four at least. Or at least. All brass instruments need three valves for them to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the extra valves are really just for intonation and for uh, range extension. Okay. But every brass instrument basically has three valves. So where does the instrument start in terms of playing without valves, which I suppose from a purely historical acoustical point of view is where everything started. That's right. So where does it, where, where does it begin, the basic scale of the instrument? Well, all brass instruments are bugles uh, without the valves. And when you add the valves, you get the notes in between. So... If I wanted to play what's called the harmonic series, which a bugle can play, it starts on the fundamental pitch, which is down in the basement. That's the fund- that, that is the fundamental F, okay? right? Now, I can actually go below that. And then uh, I can go above it. Now, the harmonic series op- uh, operates uh, by not using any valves to begin with. So the, the fundamental F, 
the fundamental low F is the first note in the harmonic series. Now the next note in the series is an octave above that. And then the intervals afterwards become a bit closer together. And so forth. Now, the harmonic series, of course, is a common property to all acoustic musical instruments. And what you've just demonstrated uh, reveals that the harmonic series is based upon a fundamental, and then the next overtone, which is an octave, and then the next overtone above that, which is a, what we call a perfect fifth above that, and so forth. And as we heard, the intervals are getting closer and closer together. That's right. Now, the valves are here to accomplish what purpose? Well, what the valves do is it gives you the notes in between. Um, if we play the simple uh, overtone series, the bugle calls, if you like, uh, we're very limited uh, melodically and harmonically, obviously, to those notes. So what the valves do is give us, gives us the notes in between. So we have a separate series for each valve combination, which I can demonstrate. forth. And so with each of those changes in key, as I heard, I'm noticing that you're putting different combinations of, of valve closings and openings. That's right. And what this is doing is lengthening or shortening the available length of tube uh, of the bore of the instrument. That's right. Okay. Now, the reason why a tuba is essentially a big bugle is because the bore itself is conical the whole way. Is that correct? That's right. As opposed to a trumpet which has a large cylindrical section of bore. And the trombone too. Right. Okay. So now, can you tell me a little bit about the valves on your instrument? There are two classifications of valves for brass instruments. That's correct. Uh, rotary valves and piston valves. So the rotary valves create uh, their change of tubing by turning and the piston valves by pressing up and down. That's right. What is common here in North America? Most uh, most American-built tubers uh, are piston valves. Uh, most British tubers are piston valve. Uh, most, if not all, I guess most European tubers are rotary valve. Tell me about the instruments that were created uh, in the 1830s. That the tuba essentially appeared in its modern version uh, through the efforts of a Prussian and, and German inventor around uh, 1835. Were those early instruments valved, and how many valves would they have had? Yes, they did have valves. The whole point of the, of the tuba being invented uh, had to wait for the invention of the valve. Uh, there were keyed bugles before that. In fact, the uh, Haydn Trumping Concerto was written for what's called a keyed bugle. Mm -hmm. But when the valve was invented, I think around 1815, that sort of opened the floodgates for uh, inventors to obviously invent instruments. And there was also a, co a coincidence uh, after the Napoleonic Wars of a tremendous uh, increase in the number of military bands. So there was certainly a market for new instruments and inventors. Who was the first uh, major composer to write for the tuba? Uh, I guess Berlioz. Uh, the earliest parts that we play are by Mendelssohn. Uh, he wrote Midsummer Night's Dream for the Ophiclide, but nowadays it's played on the tuba. When Berlioz first started writing, the Ophiclide was still the principal uh, low brass instrument. But as soon as the tuba came along, it superseded the Ophiclide, and then Berlioz sometimes would write for both Ophiclide and tuba. What about uh, Symphonie Fantastique? That's written for two uh, 
originally two ophiclides. Two ophiclides, but always performed on tuba with modern. Yeah. Is, is there a, a range difference between the ophiclide and the tuba? Yes, I think the lowest note, if I'm not mistaken, on the ophiclide is around, uh, I think it's around a low B or a low C below the bass clef. Is it safe to say, as that transition occurred, that the power of the tuba uh, was made it enough, a more effective instrument in the orchestra than the ophiclide? And the intonation also. And the intonation. Right? One reason that Berlioz actually used, very often used two ophiclides is because they had bad notes. So sometimes they'd use an ophiclide in B-flat and an ophiclide in C so they could offset each other's bad notes. <laughs> what, what other composers from that period uh, grabbed onto the new tuba for their compositions? Well, early Wagner, um, when he began writing, uh, I, sh I should mention that the first tubas were fairly small. By today's standards, they were like big euphoniums. So the earliest tuba parts were actually uh, written with a quite a high tessitura. So that's, that's why most modern players play Berlioz and early Wagner and Mendelssohn and so forth on a small tuba. Well, speaking of early Wagner or Wagner in general, let's listen to a little bit of his use of the tuba here from Meistersinger Overture. Wagner was a very interesting composer for the tuba because he wrote for both kinds of instruments. Uh, to this day in Germany, um, there's a definite divide between small and large tuba. It's very strict. Being Germans, they have to be very strict. And uh, there's a definite line uh, between which, uh, well, a line you don't cross, really. And the basic German tuba is an F tuba, like the one I'm holding. But for the larger works of Wagner, Mahler, uh, Prokofiev, and so forth, they'll use a B-flat tuba. But actually, Wagner used both kinds of tuba, sometimes in the same work. Uh, certainly, his first pieces, uh, uh, his first operas, uh, Rienzi, Tannhäuser, uh, Lohengrin, were written for a small instrument. And De Meistersinger, even though it was written later, uh, is always nowadays played on a small tuba. Because of the tessitura, I mean, most North American players play on a C tuba, which is bigger. It gets a bigger sound. But I think it sort of, uh, it spoils the effect, because what Wagner's doing in De Meistersinger particularly is he's, he's giving the tuba a melodious voice with the basses. Uh, later composers usually lumped the tuba in with the trombones as a sort of a fourth trombone. But Wagner uses the tuba sometimes as an extra bass. And if you play a low, big-sounding tuba with the basses, it sort of blends in, which is nice. 
but that kind of misses the point. I think the important thing to remember is that if you use a smaller tuba with a, with a slightly cleaner sound, you actually hear the sound of the tuba above the basses. It both reinforces and complements and adds color to it. So for that reason, I like to play De Meistersinger on a smaller tuba. Sort of a Helden tuba, if you wish. Something like that. <laughs> and what about Brahms? Brahms was very careful with the tuba. I think perhaps there weren't that many great tuba players around in those days, so he tended to write the tuba always with the trombones. He wrote some very beautiful chorales, for trombones especially, but in a couple of pieces, the uh, Second Symphony, the Tragic Overture, and then the uh, Academic Festival Overture and the Requiem, he wrote uh, tuba with the trombones, uh, usually in a supporting role for the trombones. So there are a couple of lines that the tuba gets to play on its own, uh, with the basses, for instance, uh, that sort of give it a bit of independence. But Brahms was fairly careful. Maybe we should hear a little of the last movement of Brahms' Second Symphony. Sure. Was an excerpt from Brahms' Second Symphony featuring the tuba, and our guest today on the NACOcast is Nick Atkinson, tuba player for the National Arts Center Orchestra. Moving from Brahms to Tchaikovsky, a very strong advocate of the tuba and his orchestrations, Nick. Absolutely. One of the big things about, uh, about Tchaikovsky and the Russian composers that we have to re- remember is that the biggest influence on Russian composers was Rimsky-Korsakov. And although he lived longer and a bit later than Tchaikovsky, he was for many years the inspector of Russian naval bands. So he was always hearing uh, a lot of good brass and obviously woodwind playing as well. So he, uh, he wrote very good parts in his, in his music and he influenced other Russian composers. And Russian composers tend to use brass instruments in a more colorful way than uh, most, say, German composers of the period at least. Let's hear a little of, of the tuba writing from Tchaikovsky. Here's the Fourth Symphony, Last Movement. Nick, moving into the 20th century and still staying in Russia, Sergei Prokofiev, a great advocate of the tuba. I think he must have had a friend who played the tuba because he wrote some magnificent uh, tuba parts. My, some of my favorite tuba parts are written by Prokofiev. He wrote for a big tuba primarily, and he writes very long and resonant uh, low parts, uh, often with the basses, but sometimes solo. And... Um, I think the resonance that you get in Prokofiev is a, is a real special sound. He, he, he enjoys the low sounds, you know, bass clarinet and tuba and basses, and uh, it, makes, it makes a very interesting color. Let's hear a bit of that. This is from Romeo and Juliet. 
Nick, no other instrument requires as much air as the tuba. How have you developed your ability to maximize your lung capacity? I think you have to be born with it to to an extent. Um, I'm fairly short, but I have a long body. So I have a fairly, I have an above average lung capacity. I have about five liters. Even now at age 60, I still have five liters, which is above average. Mm -hmm. Um, What you have to do, obviously, is be in good shape to play a a wind instrument of any kind. Um, And you can do certain things. Yoga is useful, actually. There's a lot of yoga breathing exercises that you can do. But basically, you just have to practice and uh, take deep breaths and use your air very wisely. You are an advocate and a student of perhaps the greatest low brass pedagogue of the 20th century, Arnold Jacobs. Tell me a bit about Arnold Jacobs and what his teaching represents. I guess if I had to think of one word to describe it, it would be um, efficiency. Because he himself had many health problems uh, as a young man. Who was he? Well, first of all, he was a tuba player in the Chicago Symphony for 44 years. Uh, and before that, he, was, uh, he played in Pittsburgh and Indianapolis. He went to Curtis Institute. He was a real virtuoso prodigy at the age of probably 16 or 17 when he went to Curtis. What kind of health problems did he deal with? He had emphysema. He had asthma. Uh, he had a condition that radically reduced his uh, lung capacity, so he had to play very efficiently. Both of those conditions, one would presume, would just rule out a career as a tuba player. You would think so, and he played in the orchestra until he was 74 years old. So how did he solve the issues, the challenges? Well, he used his air very well. He had a tremendously resonant sound, and the basis of his teaching really is uh, is the efficiency of production. A lot of people think he's, uh, he talks mainly about breathing, for instance, which is important, but the most important thing is what you do with the breath how you use the breath as fuel for the sound, and how the breath interacts with the embouchure or the vibrating lips to make an efficient sound. So here I am, a a brand new tuba student of yours, Nick, and I'm sitting down and I'm about to take my first big inhalation. Help me. (laughs) Um, The word I use a lot with teaching is, uh, is focus. And a good way to develop a good deep breath is just to stick a straw or the end of the mouthpiece, the thin end of the mouthpiece into your mouth and suck it as though it's a gigantic milkshake. If you suck the air in through the end of the mouthpiece, your lungs will fill up very quickly and efficiently. You take air in primarily through the mouth. I do, yes. And that is typical for brass players. It's the most efficient way. Because you need to get in a lot of air very quickly. Very quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, we also have to cheat. Uh, sometimes if you have a, a, a fast-running passage of eighths and sixteenth notes and there's not much chance to breath to breathe, I will sometimes sniff air through my nose, uh, which is also a legitimate way of doing it. But the mouth breath is definitely more efficient. So here I am again in my first tuba lesson. I've taken my first breath and I begin to play a long tone. Do I try to play to the very last molecule of air in, the, in my lungs? No. Why? Because um, the last, probably the last quarter of your lung capacity is, is really unusable. You're getting into gasp mode. It's like driving a car uh, with a full tank of gas. Once you get around the bottom end of the gas tank, all those uh, bits of wood and stuff in the gas tank start <laughs> coming through the fuel line and uh, it clogs things up. So you need to be always working on the top sort of two-thirds, three-quarters of your lung capacity. That's a great analogy. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about the apparatus of breathing, the muscular uh, motions involved. Well, there's a lot of nonsense uh, written and spoken about breathing. Uh, people write doctoral theses about it, and it just gets very confusing. Uh, the best way to think about breathing is to keep it extremely simple. 
And what Jacob used to say was, you suck the air in and you blow it out. So if you just sort of open your mouth and suck the air in, and then blow it out, that's how you breathe. And everything else that happens, the lungs expand, the diaphragm drops. All that happens as a result of your sucking the air in, not the other way around. A lot of people think that you have to somehow physically move your diaphragm, which you can't actually do without breathing in. You can make an artificial movement, but it doesn't actually take any air into your lungs. Mm-hmm. It's a fake, I call it a fake breath. What about the use of vibrato on the tuba? I like to use vibrato. I think Jacobs actually used way too much vibrato. He was a very old-fashioned, uh, soloistic kind of player. He sounds a bit like Misha Elman on the tuba, you know? Mm-hmm. Lots of sliding and lots of vibrato. But I do like vibrato for color. And uh, I try to color the sound uh, not always with vibrato, but certainly with vibration, which is a slightly different thing. I think there's a difference between a straight sound, which you sometimes hear on the French horn. Uh, if you listen to a, a Russian or French French horn player, sometimes you'll hear vibrato, sometimes you won't. In fact, what's interesting is, uh, if you listen to Dresden Staatskapelle recordings, the horn players, when they're playing in the section, don't use any vibrato, but when, they use, when they're playing a solo, sometimes they'll use vibrato just in the solo. So I think you have to be a bit uh, careful how you use it. If you use too much vibrato, you can't play in tune with the trombones. They get very angry with you. What's the biggest challenge of sitting on a stage and playing with an orchestra? And I, and I ask this question in the context of ensemble playing, of understanding where to place things. That's a good way of putting it. Um, the tuba, uh, as I mentioned when we spoke last week, is a sort of protean instrument. It, it has many different roles. And you have to be careful the kind of sound you make and the kind of attack you make and how you balance with whoever you happen to be playing with. I think when you're playing with the trombones, it's fairly straightforward because they make a strong, powerful sound. And what you want to do is to, is to create a strong fundamental with lots of weight so it makes them actually sound better. If you're playing, say, with the bassoons, you have to make a slightly different kind of sound, maybe a bit more articulation, not quite so much weight. And it depends on the circumstances, who you're playing with. Do you feel sometimes, being at the bottom of the orchestra, that you're like Sisyphus carrying the entire orchestra? Well, sometimes. It's, the tuba is an interesting part to play in the orchestra because most people just think you make a loud, low noise back there and it doesn't really matter whether you're there or not. But a good analogy, actually, is to listen to a, a, a jazz band that has uh, conga drums and then listen to the band without the drums. You don't necessarily hear the drums when they're playing, but when they're not playing, you don't. there's something missing. Uh, a lot of people used to think that the tuba should be seen and not heard. People used to say, you should feel the sound rather than hear it. And I think that is the case sometimes. For instance, when you're just laying down a fundamental and adding to the general sort of bass sound, it's useful to think in that way. But occasionally you have to stick out a bit and, and, uh, and stick your nose over the parapet and let people see that you're there. <laughs> You mentioned a few minutes ago about your lung capacity and, and it being very good for a man of your age. We all celebrated your 60th birthday on stage here a few weeks ago. Realistically, and this is a very interesting question for me, uh, in terms of the health of the lungs and the elasticity of the lips, how long of a career can a tuba player have? You mentioned that Arnold Jacobs played 44 years in the Chicago Symphony. So do you think that there's every reason to assume that you'll still be functioning well at 75? Well, I think if you're healthy and you keep practicing, uh, you can play for a very long time. Is it an instrument that perhaps is a little less demanding on the lip 
mus- muscles than the trumpet, for example? That's, that's certainly the case. So you feel it's an instrument that's more survivable? Yes. I mean, I've heard some people say that you should never get tired practicing the tuba. Really? I think it's not true, but, uh, <laughs> but you can't play the trumpet for five hours. Where do you get tired when you're playing? In the lips? Nowadays, um, if I do a lot, of, a lot of high playing, if I'm working on a solo that has a very high tessitura, uh, I don't want to play too much in the high register for too long because, uh, first of all, you get tired and then you get very stiff and it affects the rest of your register as well. How do you maintain the health of your lips when the weather is 30 below? You have to try and get warm fast. <laughs> it's a real problem, actually. Um, when, when you're carrying the instrument outside to inside, uh, and it's been outside, say, in the back of the car for even half an hour, it might take 15 or 20 minutes to warm it up inside. You have to blow air through it. Your lips are cold. So I, I buzz the mouthpiece a lot. I'm a big advocate of mouthpiece buzzing for a variety of reasons, but uh, that warms up the lips, warms up the mouthpiece, and then eventually you can uh, play the instrument and make it sound decent. Show me what that, what that sounds like. I should explain, first of all, that the, the sound on all brass instruments is made by vibrating lips and that the instrument amplifies the sound made by vibrating lips. So when you buzz the mouthpiece, you can actually play tunes on the mouthpiece, which are then amplified by the tuba. So if you practice on the mouthpiece, it, it really uh, it zeroes in on the, on the fundamental sound production of the instrument. I'll play um, Somewhere Over the Rainbow again. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Atkinson on a smallest tuba in existence. It's three inches long. It's just his mouthpiece. That's remarkable. Yeah, well, (laughs) it's what we do. And you do it so well. Nick, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us today. I know our NACOcast listeners will appreciate your um, participation even more, knowing a little bit more about these instruments. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks a lot, Chris. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacocast at gmail.com. We always look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Search on NACOcast. Until next time, this is Christopher Millard saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.